I would encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to spend time as we do every week in the Word of God. We preach the Word of God without apology. We believe the Word of God is authoritative. And while we hear a lot of voices in our ears every week from our friends and family, from politicians and media, this is God's Word and it's always a blessing. Last night as I was reading my Bible, I was reading off my phone. And of course, you know, you have the opportunity to just kind of just scroll up. And after I'd read a, a passage or two, I was just scrolling through my phone. And I thought, you know, one of the beauties, beautiful things about God's word is no matter where you land, there's always a blessing there for, you, for God's people. There's always truth that transforms. There's always a word of hope, a word of perspective a word of encouragement. God's word is a beautiful thing. And increasingly as God's people, we need to hunger for it to a greater degree than we do our favorite meal. We need to desire it and be excited, not, oh, I got to read my Bible again because the pastor says I should, but to hunger after God's word is to hunger after righteousness and to hunger after a word from the Lord. So I believe that God's word is always a blessing to his people. So we're going to spend time today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. I'm just going to give you two statements to get us going. Tell me if there's much of a difference between these two statements. What the world needs right now is hope. That's statement number one. Statement number two is what the world needs is hope. Is there much of a difference between those two statements? There is a slight difference. The first is interpreted as temporal hope. People often say during challenging times, what the world needs right now in the moment is hope. And what they mean by that is that we need a peace treaty or what we need is reconciliation or what we need is a vaccine or what we need is a better government or what we need is, and they fill in the blank. What the world needs right now is hope. But what's interesting about the Bible is that the Bible teaches us that the world always needs hope. We need to lock into an eternal kind of hope that transcends the things of this world, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We need something, or more accurately, someone that can forever fix all that is bad and guarantee us that someday bad will never happen again. If I could use the illustration to help you to understand the difference between we need hope right now versus we just need hope, let's use the illustration of water. Let's suppose you're drawing water from a cistern or a well. Every cistern or every well ultimately has limited capacity. If you keep pumping water from the well, at some point it will go dry and you'll run out. But if you've ever been to one of those streams, there's one up north near our cottage, you kind of go down this gravel road and there's this pipe sticking out of the ground. It runs 24 hours a day seven days a week, 365 and one quarter days a year. 
It's just constantly producing water. You don't turn it on, you don't turn it off. It's just always producing water. And that's the difference between hope in the now and hope eternal. Hope eternal never, ever runs out. We often look for fixes in the moment. Let's sign that peace treaty. Let's end that war, that conflict between these two countries. And we celebrate when it happens, but we know that at some point in history it's going to happen again. Or in the future it's going to happen again. We can find a vaccine for COVID-19. Fine, we'll find one eventually. We all know that. But eventually there'll be something else. Another epidemic. Another plague. Another disease. It'll happen again. And it'll happen again. And it'll happen again until God renews all things in his eternal kingdom. Now, the first kind of hope, the hope in the now, does solve temporal problems, but the second kind of hope solves both. It solves the events of the moment, and it also solves our ultimate problem, which is sin and death and separation from God. Now, where do we find this? What is the who? What is the thing that solves this problem? What is the thing that we look to for ultimate hope? I want you to be thinking about this. Because too often I'm absolutely 110% convinced that we all have our doctrine right, but we don't necessarily apply it in space and time to the circumstances we find ourselves in. So what is the source? What is the doctrine? What is the truth that gives us eternal hope? It is, in fact, Christ's resurrection, which when appropriated and applied to our lives, guarantees the believer the sure hope of resurrection life. This is the spring that never runs dry. So whether you die by a heart attack, a stroke, cancer, a bullet, the sword, a virus, or an automobile accident, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be absolutely assured of resurrection life. Remember, if you've been born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once. If you have been born again, you will die physically, but you will not die spiritually. And even your physical body will one day be resurrected from the grave, and made new through the work of Jesus Christ. Why is this message important? Well, it fixes fear. It takes the edge off and puts perspective on mourning and suffering. And it gives us something to look forward to in this broken order. So here's what we're going to find in the Word of God today. We have resurrection hope, and that changes everything. Now, I could just tell you what the Bible says. I could just communicate doctrine to you, just truth statements, propositions. I could just say to you, uh, the bodily resurrection is true. Add that to your doctrinal statement. Add that to your belief system. But that's not what I said. I said, we have resurrection hope, and that changes everything. It changes everything. What we're going to be challenged to think about today is whether or not this belief in the bodily resurrection is actually changing the way we live our lives. 
if it's changing the way you lived your life this week or if you just kind of forgot about it. Again, too often doctrine is true, but it's impractical. But every page of scripture is life-giving and meaningful. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to start with verse 13. And there we learn that resurrection is truth that transforms us. The word of God to the people of God is as follows. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now that verse is packed full of life-giving truth, transformative truth. You can see in the text that it's obviously intended for believers. We know that because the audience is, in, is addressed as brothers, spiritual siblings to the writers of this text, the Apostle Paul and Silas and his, his associates. And the fact that the verse starts this way, but we do not want you to be uninformed, suggests or implies that it's possible for Christians to be ignorant of this truth. It's possible for Christians to be confused due to lack of information. But there's no reason for us to be confused or to, uh, for us to be ignorant about the truth of a bodily resurrection. Maybe we can give the Thessalonian church that originally received this message a bit of a break because they didn't have a completed canon of Scripture. Maybe they missed it somewhere in the sermon. But we have a redemptive historical advantage because we have had for 2,000 years almost a canon of Scripture, a completed book. That's what the Bible means. It means book. This is the Word of God. And we know, because we've been, had access to the completed canon of Scripture for almost two millennia, that the Bible teaches a bodily resurrection. This is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's found in other passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the things, thing we preach about at our funerals. By the way, if you ever go to a funeral and the funeral does not reference the bodily resurrection, you have not attended a truly Christian funeral. You don't go to a funeral and just tell people, we love you, we love you, we're going to stick with you, we're going to pray with you, and stop there. Every Christian funeral must be baselined in the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. If there's no resurrection, we have no hope. We have nothing to look forward to. We have no perspective, no real answers to the questions that people ask. But we know this to be true. The question is, do you know it? And do you know it not just like in your mind, but you know it in your heart and in your attitude and in your approach and in the way that you process the challenges that you experience, that we all experience in our lives. It's possible to be uninformed, but we are going to be informed today. This is a message again for believers. Now notice that believers, there's a little implication here, believers view death differently than lost people do. You see that in the text? What's the word that's used to describe the death of a believer in this verse? 
It's the word asleep. It's the word asleep. This word often comes up in scripture in reference to the death of believers. And it is intended to be a soft term for death, which assumes beforehand that an awakening will follow. So when you go to sleep at night, you know that in six hours, eight hours, if you're under 18, 14 hours, you're going to eventually wake up. You don't say, this is it. They went to sleep, never going to see them again. To use the word sleep anticipates an awakening. And this is why the believer, while they close their eyes in death, will one day have their bodily body resurrected. Of course, we believe that when a person dies, their soul and spirit immediately go into the presence of God. I don't believe in soul sleep. There are some that teach that, that your soul and body and spirit all sleep until the bodily resurrection. I believe that to, become, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. I think the scripture teaches that. But your body will sleep, but one day it will be resurrected. And this truth is the preamble to another truth that we're about to be introduced to in this same passage. And this is the truth of a bodily resurrection, which right at the beginning, he gives us the object of his lesson so that you may not grieve as others do that have no hope. So in this verse, he hasn't actually mentioned the word resurrection yet. But we know what his desired goal is. So this is my desired goal for my sermon today. My desire is that when you leave today and you are confronted with death, disease, challenges, things that will rattle the cage, rock the boat, unsettle lost people, that you will act differently that you will have a different perspective, that you won't be fearful, that you won't be hopeless, that you won't get off mission, but that you'll push forward because you do not grieve like those that have no hope, meaning that if you believe in what the apostle is about to teach us, you do have hope. This information obviously is intended to affect your emotional and mental response to loss. So before we go any further, let me just kind of get real practical with you. What are some things that you've lost in your life that you've mourned? Nothing wrong with mourning, but we don't mourn like those that have no hope. But what are some things that you've lost? Maybe your grandparents? I've lost all of my grandparents now. Two of them I didn't really know that well because I was six when they died. My other two grandparents were very precious to me, kind of like another father and mother figure. I have a brother that almost lost his life and is permanently disabled and has been for 20 years. And there's always sort of an ongoing mourning. You know, what would he be like if that hadn't happened? You know, what? what it would have been like to attend his wedding. I wonder what his children would have been like, but that won't happen because he's permanently disabled. There's an ongoing sense of loss there that you just learn to live with. 
what are some things that you have lost? What are some opportunities that you have sacrificed? Maybe you've lost a parent. Maybe like me, you grew up in a broken home where mom and dad split when I was 10 years old and there's always this certain sense of loss. Like, I wonder what it would have been like to have been raised with a dad around. I wonder what it would have been like to have been raised in an intact family. There's just a certain sense of loss. What are some of the things that you've experienced in life that have affected your emotions and your mindset? And then think about your own life. At some point, all of you will be the subject of a funeral. It'll be your name in the obituary. It'll be you in the casket or the urn, preferably the casket. I'm not much into cremation, by the way. I'm not sure I've ever taught that in the church, but I'm not a, I'm not a fan of cremation. I like the visual of the body in the casket going into the grave. One day you will be the person in the funeral home and people will mourn your loss. Maybe a few dozen people will show up to your funeral. Maybe a few thousand people will show up to your funeral. But you will be the subject of the obituary What is the truth that transforms your approach to these issues in life? What is the truth that will enable people to process your loss? We dislike death. And sometimes we make the mistake, I think, of not thinking about it enough. But there is another part to the story, another chapter yet to be written. Have you allowed this hope to transform your mourning? Look at verse 14. There we learn that resurrection is participation in Christ's victory. So we have not just a promise from God, but we have a guarantee from God because he has already secured our resurrection through the merit and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 reads, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, so in your mind, just put a big old equal sign, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Who are those who have fallen asleep? The brothers, the church, true believers. So the basis of our assurance of resurrection life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why By the way, if you're a budding theologian, one of the things you need to be thinking about is think of the doctrines of Scripture as a series of interconnected dots. When you remove one, the rest suffer. So when we talk of the resurrection of Jesus, some might say, well, that's not really a cardinal verity. That's not a fundamental of the faith. Like, Do we need to argue about that? Like, Let's say someone doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Is that really an issue of orthodoxy? Yeah, it is. Because if you remove that from the equation, there's a ripple effect. And one of the effects that we see here is if Christ didn't conquer death, then he didn't conquer it for you. So each thing that we believe in biblical orthodoxy affects other things. And now we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We're like, well, what does that have to do with my hope? It is the basis of 
the assurance that you can have that you will one day be raised from the dead. So in the same way God brought Jesus from the grave, so the Father will one day bring sleepers, meaning believers who have died from the grave as well. And we can say then that if the one who promised eternal life to us has already secured it for us, then really all we're in right now is a waiting game. We don't have to wait for God to do anything else. It's been purchased and paid for and secured. This is, this is the basis of our assurance, our surety. We're just in a waiting game. Now, there's a lot of things we wait for in life and we're fairly confident they'll happen, but at the end of the day, we really don't know. So you, you sell your house or you purchase a house and each party puts a deposit down or there's an agreement signed and there's some assurance there. It's like, oh, my house is sold. I put the sold sign on the front lawn. I can go purchase another house. I can put an offer on another house because I'm sure. I, I have a document that says they're going to close the deal on a certain date. And I have $10,000 in my possession as a deposit to prove that they're serious about it. But we all know that real estate transactions can literally fall apart on the last day. We almost had one fall apart last year. On the day we're selling one house and closing another, the bank's computer software crashed and we sold our house literally at 4.59 p.m. The land register office closes at five. Well, one minute, it's impossible for them to then transfer our money so we can purchase our house. So our house is sold, but legally I can't buy the next house because of a bank error. Talk about terrifying. The owner's calling me, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to take you to court. Unfortunately, my lawyer did something called closing in escrow. And we basically moved into this house we didn't own and the next day it closed. But it, I was actually shedding tears. I was like, oh, I'm going to lose my shirt. I'm going to go to jail. I always thought I'd go to jail for the gospel, not for <laughs> defaulting on a house purchase. You can be sure, but you're never really sure. Like things can fall apart at the last deal. We, we hear people, they got the engagement ring on their finger. And at the last minute, what are both party bails out? There's a lot of things in life we think we can be sure about, but there's very few things in life we actually can be sure about. But one of the things we can be sure about is the resurrection because not only has Christ put a deposit in, he has conquered death itself. It's conquered death itself. I decided, because I, I was pretty sure this was true, but I decided to do a little Google search this week for the word hope. And if you jump online, you get all these online di dictionaries. And if you do a synonym check, one of the synonyms for the word hope, which won't surprise you, is the word wish. Well, that might be a synonym for temporal hope, but that ain't no synonym for biblical hope. Because we don't wish. My hope is not, oh, I hope it happens. I'm wishing. 
crossing my fingers. No. Christian hope is a different kind of thing. Christian hope is divinely revealed, divinely secured certainty. And by the way, as you think about some of the words we use in our faith, don't let the world twist the definitions. Faith is not wishing. Belief is not cross my fingers, hope it'll happen. A step into the the dark, a step into the unknown. Check my brain at the door, just follow my heart. That's not Christian faith, that's not Christian hope. That's not Christian belief. Christian hope, Christian faith, Christian belief is divinely revealed, divinely secured certainty. It's the kind of certainty we can literally take to God's heavenly bank. I see a lot of people in the world today that, I, that say they're Christians, but I, I'm not convinced that they've allowed the doctrine of the resurrection to affect them, or they, they're just demonstrating they really don't believe it at all. They're uninformed, maybe not uninformed in terms of knowledge of, but certainly uninformed in terms of application of. They're at funerals, crying their eyes out. Absolutely out of control. Hopeless. Distraught beyond belief. And then they're the same the next day and the next day and the next month and the next year. Totally dysfunctional because they've lost a loved one. Now, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for a long, long time. And I have a huge heart for people. And I know what it's like to bawl my eyes out at great loss. But we need to ask ourselves the question in our mourning. We're not talking about going to funerals and just pretending that nothing's wrong. There's a place to mourn. There's a place to cry. There's a place to weep. And it goes on for a long time. I understand all of that. But we do not mourn like those that have no hope. We don't lose our minds We don't go into a funk to the point that we can't function. We we mourn the reality of death and sin's effects. But we believe in the reality of a bodily resurrection for those that know and love the Lord Jesus. So we process life differently. And we do not make the mistake of taking those that we love and holding them with clenched fists. We hold them with cupped hands. We understand we are not owners. This is is the posture of an owner. This is the posture of a steward. I don't own my wife or my children. It would break my heart if the Lord took any of them from me. But I'm prepared for that. Because God has not guaranteed me one more day with my wife, one more day with my children, one more day with any of you. But I know that God has guaranteed me and my family because they all know the Lord, eternal life. So that changes things. That changes things. When it comes to the current crises we find in our world, I don't want to get COVID. I don't want to get cancer. I don't want to have a stroke. I don't even want to get the flu. I don't want to even have a cough. 
I don't want to get a sliver in my hand. I don't want to get anything. But life is filled with risk and reward. And I'm not going to hunker down and lock myself away in my bedroom for the next two or three years. Fearful, terrified, trusting in unbelievers to make all the decisions for me, failing to preach the gospel, failing to demonstrate love to lost people, closing down our worship, closing down our witness, closing down our preaching because I might die. I'm prepared for that. Do I want to die? No. But in life, you have to weigh the risk and the reward. When you get in your car, you risk killing someone, but you're prepared to do it. You risk getting killed, but you're prepared to do it. We don't want to be foolish. We're not going to throw ourselves in front of a bus. But if I have resurrection hope, it changes my perspective. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not looking forward to the means. But I'm not afraid of death, and nor should we be. And what we need to do is move away from this hyper self-protection mode that so many of us find ourselves in when crises invade our lives, which is nothing more than a sign of disbelief in the resurrection. And be careful, but also weigh out the consequences of our actions in terms of what we're gaining and what we're losing and move forward wisely, believing in the reality of a bodily resurrection. Let me ask you this. How many of you have leveraged the current culture of fear that we have in our world to share the gospel with lost people? Probably many of you. Some of you, probably not at all. You're protecting yourself. You're protecting your family. You want to make sure that you make it through another month. But you're quite content not to leverage, not to take advantage of the current crises, to talk to people about the hope that you have. Hey, I process things differently. I live differently. I don't want to die. I don't want my loved ones to die. I don't want other people to die, but people die. People die, multiple people die every minute in our world. And we don't talk about that much. People are dying all the time. All over the world today, there's the cry of babies being born. And there's the cry of people mourning the loss of loved ones. Minute by minute, hour by hour. People are dying. And that's just the, the way life goes. Every hundred years or so, at the most, the entire population is gone and there's a new population on the planet. But we have a message that transcends all of that. And it's secured in the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection, third truth and related, is actually a guarantee Let's look at a few more verses. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So this is a bit of a time 
frame here for us, a sequence of events. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So that means that obviously we know there's a church that has gone before us. They have died. They're present with the Lord in spirit. Their body's in the grave. God will resurrect dead believers first. Living believers will be taken up second. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So this teaches us that in the end, again, dead believers will be resurrected first and then living believers will be taken up. Now, by the way, a little eschatological thing here. Unless there's a gap between those two, then you must be a pre-tribulational rapture believer. Because both believers and unbelievers are taken up at the same time, unless you see a gap between the two. And on what authority are they taken up? Look at verse 15, the word of the Lord. How, how authoritative on a scale of one to 10 would you say is the word of the Lord? <laughs> how authoritative is the word of Aaron Rock? Uh, zero, someone said. <laughs> How authoritative is your, you know, your favorite politician? Everybody has a degree of authority, but when it comes to the word of the Lord, that's, that's, that's pretty authoritative. I mean, that, that's a 10 out of 10 right there. So the authority that guarantees our resurrection is God said so. I might say so. Hopefully most of the things that I say I will act on but I will fail. At what time? Look at verses 15 and 16. We don't know the date, but we know the event. The Lord will come. There'll be a mighty voice, the voice of an archangel, and he will take his church unto himself. Who will be his agent? Verse 16. Christ himself, the Lord himself, will descend from heaven. This is a reference to Jesus the one that secured it for us will also come and take us to be with the Lord. And by what means, verse 16 and 17, loud noises announcing his victory, even in advance of this actual rapture. Now, if you're a military person, you don't send an email in advance to your enemy and say, hey, by the way, just so you're aware, we're gonna be attacking at such and such a time. If you don't mind being ready for it, that make things easier. You sneak up, unless you're threatening them and you, you think they're going to back down. You, you don't tell them. You, the sneak attack is where you win. God is so powerful and strong. He doesn't like say to, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to sneak up on Satan. He doesn't need to sneak up on a broken world. He announces it. It's heard. And then he comes. Why? Because he, he's going to win. Okay, in the end, guess who wins? God wins through Christ. The devil doesn't win. We're not like yin-yang or yin-yang theologians where you know, the, the devil and God are kind of like brothers at odds that are sort of battling it out, like the forces of good and darkness sort of e in e with equal strength and opposition. 
You know, and we're not quite sure. It's like an arm wrestle, you know, with your twin brother. Who's going to win? We're not quite sure. It's not that. The devil is not God's, you know, evil twin. He's a created weakling who has zero chance of ever defeating God. And this is, the, this is why our resurrection is guaranteed. We don't even have to question it. And if we do question it, what we've questioned, we've questioned the word of God. We've questioned the work of Christ. We've questioned the resurrection of Christ. And we've questioned the very power of God himself. So then we're atheists. Or agnostics. Or demons. Or false teachers. So think about this. When we question the resurrection, it's not neutral. It's not a little slip up of our faith. It's to be God's enemy. If you question the resurrection, you're God's enemy because you've questioned the word of God. You've questioned the person of God. You've questioned the work. You've questioned everything in Christianity. So I think this is a bit of a sobering reminder to us. This isn't something, ah, you know, another area of my sanctification, maybe I'll get get there in due time. This is foundational to our identity as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why all of this is communicated to us is to encourage us. Resurrection is an encouragement. Look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And this sense of encouraging one another is like an ongoing, continuous event that needs to take place in the life of the church. We don't just talk about the reality of the resurrection in you know, theology 101 in our discipleship class or at the point of our baptism. We need to talk about this regularly to remind one another of the truth of the resurrection and its implications for our lives. Now, how do I know if I've forgotten it? How do I know if I've not appropriated it? I'm perpetually discouraged. If I'm perpetually discouraged, if I'm perpetually depressed, if I, I, can't, I, I just can't move forward because I've lost someone or I've lost something or I'm scared to death, that tips us off to the fact that we have in fact forgotten. We are not allowing the resurrection to inform us enough. So make sure that you have that you take time to assess your heart, your emotions, your responses to things. And just like you, you know, follow the trail of breadcrumbs back to the loaf of bread, you follow the emotions back to the lie that's causing them. So if I'm, if I'm feeling angst a lot, if I, I, I just can't seem to shake the fact that I lost my wife or my husband or my child or my parent, I, I just can't move on, I'm, I'm fearful, like, why is that? Is it like, is it a chemical thing? Is it social? Is it a political thing? Is it, I didn't go to school long enough? No, it, if you follow it back and you discover that it's a spiritual problem and you have failed to appropriate, meaning to apply in your life the doctrine of the resurrection, there's a solution for you. Believe, have faith, rest in, trust in what God has done for us. Life is not about avoiding death. You know that? Life is not about avoiding death. 
Life is about preaching, praying, serving, and being prepared to die a good death. And you can be prepared to die a good death if you have the hope of resurrection life, which is available to all that have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you happen to be here today and you have not yet trusted in Jesus, now what does that look like? It looks like this. It looks like understanding that you're a sinner. We're all born in sin. We act sinfully. Sinful words come out of our mouths. Sinful thoughts go through our minds. We commit sins with our hands, our feet, our bodies, in offense to others, in offense to God. We're sinners. That's our like title from conception. And sinners don't get into heaven. They, they clash with God. To be a sinner is to be opposed to God, to be a rebel against God. Sinners don't get into heaven. And so sinners, in fact, go to the eternal lake of fire. They're damned. They're separated from God. If they die today, they go to hell. And in the end, hell is dumped into the lake of fire and they are eternally separated from God for all of eternity. That's how holy God is, by the way. You might think, well, that's kind of a little harsh. Well, you can take that up with God. God is apparently so holy that he will not allow even a smidgen of sin into his eternal abode. But God being rich in love and mercy, sent the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has a few qualifications that we don't have. His first qualification is he happens to be God, and God can forgive sin. His second qualification is he sidestepped the sin nature by being born of a virgin. The Bible teaches that the sin nature is passed from father to child. He sidestepped the sin nature. He then was born perfect God and perfect man, not 50-50, not God one day, man the next, 100% all the time. He died in our place on our behalf as our substitute. You did the crime, he did the time. He died in our place on our behalf. And the means of being saved is not trying to act like Jesus. That's what false religions teach. Act like Muhammad, act like Jesus, act like the Buddha, act like whatever their religious leader is. Follow this list of rules. and No, no, that comes after. The means of becoming a Christian is not act like Jesus. The means of becoming a Christian is repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died in your place on your behalf. And if you truly believe that, God will transform you and you'll be eternally reconciled to God. And then you'll start acting like Jesus as a necessary outcome of that. When that happens, you have resurrection hope. But I would be remiss and I would fail as a preacher to let any of you think that you can leave here today and have resurrection hope if you've not put your faith in Jesus. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, no matter where you land on the goody two-shoes scale of life, no matter how good you are or how bad you are, you will not be resurrected unto eternal life, you'll be resurrected unto eternal death. And that's a sad thing. It, it would be a sad thing for anyone to live their life in this world, to have the opportunity to put their faith in Christ, to surrender themselves to Christ, but to say, ah, I'm not interested. 
I'm not going to consider that. Do you know how many people don't bother thinking about death? I've driven in a few funeral coaches over the years to funerals that I've officiated. And more often than not, if I'm in the front, I'm with the funeral director, I like to strike up a spiritual conversation. I've asked questions like, hey, I'm just kind of curious, what's your perspective on death? You're around death all the time. What's your perspective? You would be amazed at how many funeral directors never think about their own spiritual condition. They embalm bodies every single day. And they don't think about it. It's just like they've, they've blocked it out. Now, there's some great believing funeral directors out there too that know the Lord. But apart from Christ, there's so many of them. I remember having a conversation with this one girl. I said, what do you think happens to, this is going back years, what do you think happens to people when they, when they go in the, in the casket in the ground? She starts going on about all the biological functions and changes and chemistry. And No, no, I'm not talking about that. Doesn't think about it. Hey, each of us knows that we're going to die. Why would we not prepare for that? Why would you just say, don't want to think about it? That's a yucky thought. I'm going to pretend it's not going to happen. Uh, maybe God at the end will give me a break. Give me a pass. There's, not, there's never been a person at the University of Windsor that's got a BA for not showing up to class, not paying their tuition, and not doing their homework. God doesn't give anybody a pass. Doesn't mean you get to earn it. But Christ has earned it for you. And if you trust in him, God will give you a pass and let you into his eternal kingdom. So I would urge you, if you've never done so, to just put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could even pray a prayer right now to, the, to this effect. Lord, I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I, I can't earn my way into your eternal kingdom. I don't deserve eternal life. But I want to repent of my sins. I want to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And I want to trust that Jesus is enough to secure for me eternal life. And if that is, if you were to pray that, if you were to confess the Lord Jesus and that were to reflect the truth of your heart, you've actually already been spiritually regenerated, by the way. If you're praying that prayer, God's already transformed you. You've been spiritually regenerated and you can be assured of eternal life to come. So let's, let's pray. And as we do pray, if you know the Lord, if you know the Lord and this is a truth that you're living in, thank him for it, praise him for it. If you've been convicted today that you know the Lord, and frankly, it hasn't been appropriated in your life, you just haven't been thinking about it, make it happen. And if you don't know the Lord, accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.